Well, if you could join me this morning in your Bibles in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. We're going to jump back into our study through the book of Matthew and work our way through this and uh, take a brief break for Easter and probably the week before. Um, But we want to continue studying the life of Jesus today and his teachings as we look at Matthew chapter 18 and we'll be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. So why don't you find your place there in a paper or a digital copy of God's Word. What do you think it takes to be great? If you had to define greatness to somebody, how would you define that? There's a lot of people who make actually a lot of money trying to answer that question. If you're a podcast person, that's kind of the new age radio, if you're not familiar with what that is. Um, There's a podcast that apparently shows there's enough interest in greatness because this podcast is called The School of Greatness. It was started by a guy named Lewis Howes. I was kind of like a a B-level professional football guy. He has interviewed on his podcast the people you would expect to be on a podcast about greatness. Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes, A-list celebrities, cultural icons. Now, how interested is American culture in learning about greatness? Well, there's a lot of ways we could probably try and answer that, but Maybe this number will help you understand how uh, much people are interested in learning about greatness. This one podcast dedicated to the subject of greatness has over 100 million downloads. 100 million different times people have tuned in to interviews with these different people talking about their take on what it means to be great. Now, maybe you're here and you say, well, I'm not all that concerned about greatness, but let's all agree this morning, none of us are dreaming of being a failure, right? We all want to do well in our assigned areas of life, and so the topic of greatness is not something we don't care about. It's something we do care about. We want to be great at our jobs. We want to be great as parents. We want to be great as grandparents and church members and members of society. And we could go on and on and on down the list. This desire for humanity to achieve greatness is as old as humanity itself. We could go to the very first few pages of the Bible and really, in a way, the temptation of Adam and Eve was a desire to be great in a way that was like God. But really, we don't even have to go that far back. We can go to our text this morning in Matthew 18, which starts off with a question that's innocent enough in verse number one, where Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and they want to be great in a particular area. They've asked Jesus here at the beginning of our text, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, if there's an area that we should want to be great in, it would be good for us to want to be great in the things of God. Is that right? We don't know exactly what's behind this request. I suppose it's not entirely innocent. Maybe they saw in, if you remember way back in chapter 16 and 17, the, the great leadership status that Jesus conveyed on Peter when he said, I, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom. Or maybe they saw uh, this intimate dialogue that Peter and Jesus were having just above in chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, and they wanted to have that type of closeness to Jesus, and they were a little bit insecure that Peter was taking that from them. I don't know what exactly spurred on this question. But as Jesus hears this question, not surprising to us, he's going to turn the definition of greatness that we all would expect someone to give and turn it on its head. And what we're going to find in our passage this morning is that greatness in Christ's kingdom looks fundamentally different than we would expect. Jesus will reveal to us that, in a way, if you read between the lines of what he's saying, is that there are no people in heaven, that there are some great people and some not great people in heaven, because the only person who will be defined as truly great in heaven is Jesus Christ himself. He is the only one who gets an elevated seat at the table. Jesus, in some ways, is going to go back and forth between talking about being great, but also being concerned with something that's a lot better than greatness. And that is, he's going to speak to his disciples and make sure that they themselves are actually going to be in the kingdom of heaven. After all, What good is it to be great in the kingdom of heaven if you're not there at all? And I say that to some of you this morning. If you are great at everything in life, but you missed heaven, what would it matter? It wouldn't matter at all. In our passage, Jesus is going to show us two fundamental mindsets that make up greatness in his kingdom. (laughs) And listen, friends, you'll never hear these on a podcast called The School of Greatness. But after all, this morning, as disciples of Jesus, we come to listen to what he says, not what the world has to say about greatness. And so I hope this morning you will listen well as Jesus shows us that true greatness is when we trust God like a child and when we seek the spiritual well-being of others. Let's read just all of what Jesus has to say. And I want you to just listen because there's a lot of intimate connections as Jesus picks up this idea of being like a child and is carrying that out throughout the passage, starting in verse number one of Matthew 18. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth Me. Now, in order to understand these verses, you need to understand he's not talking about physical children anymore. 
because anyone in the kingdom is like a child. Verse number six, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halter maimed rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek, or sorry, is come to save that which was lost. How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, Verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In verses one through four, Jesus begins to flip the script on greatness. Of course, the disciples ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we get the idea that Jesus wasn't necessarily validating their pursuit of greatness because in verse number three, he starts not talking about greatness, but how someone can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or we could say how someone can know they're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse number three. Except you be converted and become as little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven of heaven. And then verse number four, he says, here's the greatest. Whoever will humble himself as this little child. And verse number two describes for us that Jesus in this moment puts on his own, if you will, a school of greatness podcast. Except rather than interviewing a professional athlete or the premier rabbi about what greatness would be in the kingdom of heaven. After all, that's probably who they would expect to hear on these subjects. Have you ever noticed that if you're really successful in one area, people automatically assume you know what you're talking about in every other area of life and politics? Is it just me who gets confused by that? Nonetheless, Jesus picks out a guest that really wasn't on anyone's podcast list. He gets a child. Now, all of you have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, and so uh, you, you could put your imagination in gear, right? I mean, if Jesus is getting a kid in front of him, I mean, to talk about greatness, what, it, what exactly questions is he going to ask this kid? I mean, kids don't necessarily exude greatness in the way that we think about, do they? In a podcast about greatness, you'd expect someone to talk about vision and planning. But most kids we know other than thinking about their birthday and Christmas, they don't think more than two minutes ahead in their life, do they? 
strategy. Well, I don't know about you, but when I think about my four-year-old Nora, there's not a lot of strategy about anything. How did you achieve all that you've had? Well, what's a kid going to say to that? Everything they have is the result of something someone else has given them. They don't earn what they have. I mean, frankly, even if they have an allowance, all of us parents know we give them way more than they deserve to get paid, right? So what is it exactly that, that you and I, as disciples of Jesus, what do we have to learn from a child? Because when it comes to worldly greatness, kids have nothing really to teach us, if we're just being honest this morning. But I think what verse number four shows us is that what we can learn from a child is something about humility and trust. Humility and trust. The thing about kids is unlike us, they don't try and question everything, do they? They trust based on their evaluation of maybe who their father or their mother is rather than just an evaluation of the facts. With kids, they trust based on the love of the person who's speaking to them. You know, if you love a kid enough, if proved enough, they'll believe anything, won't they? They'll trust, they'll humble themselves, they'll receive what you have to say. And honestly, if you're a very sick, weird person like me, sometimes you just, you know, exploit that just to mess with them, right? And tell them, you know, Maybe some of you aunts and uncles, you told your niece or your nephew that no was yes and yes was no. And, you know, your sister or your brother got him back from a day of babysitting and hated you for a little while. Because kids will believe anything. Children trust and they jump in wholeheartedly without just dipping their toe in the water. And what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that when it comes to greatness, greatness is not about, like we think, that it's about what we bring to the table and what we can offer in the equation. That's what, when we talk about greatness, that's what we're always thinking about. What can I do? What can I produce? What can I learn? But what Jesus is saying here is that in the kingdom, you actually have nothing to offer. You don't bring anything to the table. That's why Jesus said in his very first sermon, if you want to know who's going to enter the kingdom, here's what he said, very first words in his very first sermon in Matthew, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who enter into heaven are those who realize they don't have anything to offer spiritually. They recognize their poverty when it comes to the things of God. Friends, if you've been with us at all, teaching through the words of Jesus, you recognize that we are all in terribly broken by sin. And that is why, because of our sin, we don't have anything to offer to get us to heaven. None of us can climb that ladder. None of us can do enough good to get to heaven on our own. We need a force greater than ours. We need someone to give us something with which we did not earn, much like a child does. You might say, well, it's really hard for me to trust like a child. After all, I'm 40 or 60 or 80. And that's why Jesus in verse number three points out the fact 
that without God's work in your hearts, you cannot trust like a child. Notice the order of events. He says in verse number three, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What he's admitting there is that friends, in order for us to trust God like a child, we need God to be working in our heart in some way to even give us the ability to trust like a child. We studied in Sunday school this morning that faith is not generated in our own hearts. Faith comes outside of us. Faith comes by hearing. And help me finish it. Hearing comes by the word of God. Friends, if you want to learn how to trust God like a child, you need the work of God in you. And it's not a magical thing. You might say, well, you know, those people trust him and are Christians or are willing to believe the gospel and they just must have that Christian gene. No, friends, what happens is that we sit under the word of God and as we sit under the word of God, God himself does a work in us that gives us the ability to trust his gospel like a child. And it is only when you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he did everything for you, he paid your allowance, if we could say it that way, that when you humbly receive that, that is the only way, verse number three says, that you can enter into heaven. Now, this is more than just about entering the kingdom because I, I would reckon that there are some Christians here that you could use a good dose of childlike faith. You're over-evaluating. You're over-analyzing. You've justified yourself out of what God wants you to do because you've thought about this and this and this and this. And sometimes, friends, I'm not saying that our faith is not a logical or reasonable one. You've heard me enough to know I don't believe that. But sometimes, if it's in the word of God, it really is as simple as just saying, I'm gonna trust that. God says he'll provide. I'm gonna trust that. How many of you have kids who worry about whether or not they're gonna have dinner tomorrow? None of you. How many of you as God's kids sometimes worry about whether or not you're gonna have what you need? That tells me we all could grow in trusting God like a child. Because true greatness is not about what you bring to the table. It's about how much you trust in the great one, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing about children. Jesus is saying that anyone in the kingdom of heaven has humbled themselves like a child. Here's another thing we can all recognize about children. They're vulnerable, right? Give me like a verbal, because you know, someone who's sitting over here doesn't see you nod your head. Children are vulnerable, right? They're weak. They are exposed to danger, right? As a parent, you're basically trying to make sure they don't, you know, endanger themselves because when they're four or five or six, that's basically all they do all day long is they endanger themselves. Children are vulnerable. Children need other people. They're not self-sufficient. And so that's why in the remaining 10 verses or so, Jesus is gonna pivot his words and play off this idea of us being children. It's gonna teach us that if we are going to exhibit greatness in the kingdom of heaven, it's not about how self-sufficient we are, 
but it's how much we contribute and seek after the spiritual well-being of others. Jesus shows us that in verses five through 14, that true greatness seeks the spiritual well-being of others. And what Jesus is gonna do, if you can kind of listen as I break this down, he's gonna give us kind of three subsections under this that can be a little bit difficult to put together, but hopefully we'll have a better idea by the end of the sermon. He's gonna show us in verses five through six that seeking the spiritual well-being of others, what that looks like is us receiving other Christians rather than causing them to sin. Notice the contrasting commands in verse five and six. Verse number five, look at, it, look at it with me. He says, whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend, we don't use that word the same way Jesus did. He means cause to sin. So you receive my children or if you cause them to sin, it would be better for you that a millstone were hanged about your neck and that you were drowned in the depths of the sea. We'll get there in a minute. But we know that Jesus is not just talking about children in the biological sense here anymore. He's talking about his children because anybody who's part of Jesus's kingdom could rightly be called a child, right? Because they're trusting him like a child. But here's what Jesus is reminding us. And this is very important for a lot of Christians out here. It is hypocritical for us to say, I've received Jesus in my life, but I'm not gonna receive his other kids. Jesus is saying that the way you receive my children is how you're treating me in verse number five. If you receive them, you're receiving me. And verse number six is quite strong. If you didn't figure out Jesus doesn't like you messing with his kids, um, try the metaphor of a man being uh, tied around a huge millstone and being thrown into sea and drowning very speedily. That's how Jesus feels when people mistreat his kids. And I just want you to feel the sense of verse number five, just one word, the word receive. Picture what that word means. The word literally means a warm welcome. What does that look like? To receive other of God's children. To receive other of God's children and thus to receive Christ himself. I found, and for good reason sometimes, a lot of Christians have been through a lot of hard stuff and have been mistreated by a lot of God's kids. Somebody agree with that? That happens. And so what happens sometimes is a lot of us, uh, we can be too cynical and skeptical of other Christians that here's what happens. We miss the chance to show them a warm welcome because we're too scared to hurt us again. Because that last child of God, when I, did, when I was caring to them, they pushed me away. They lied about me. And so I'm just not going to receive those again. I'll stand afar and therefore I won't ever get hurt. But friend, I just want you this morning to hear the words of Jesus and, and, and just meditate for a moment on what it looks like for you, whether you've been in our church 
for 4,000 Sundays or four? What does it look like for you to receive other of God's children in here? What does it look like for you to give a warm and friendly welcome to someone else? There's a lot of that happens in our church, but I'm always convinced there could be more. And what Jesus is showing us is that the reason, this is so helpful for some of you, the reason we don't, or sorry, the reason we receive other Christians is not because of who they are. No, no, no. Look at verse five. The reason we receive other Christians is because of how we think about Christ. Whoso receives one of these little ones in my name receives me. Consider today how you could do better receiving, bringing into your circle people in this church you may never interact with. On the other hand, Jesus says, the opposite of that is to cause one of my children to sin. And I'm not entirely sure what Jesus is getting at in verse number six, what way we could cause other children to sin. It could be a sort of ousting them as the opposite of receiving. It could be Jesus is gonna talk about here in a few moments about your own sinful struggles. And I think there's some application that Christians, when you yourself are given over to sin and you live a life of unrestrained sinfulness, you are doing harm to other Christians by your example. And maybe verse number six could apply to you like that. I don't know, but here's what I think is important for us to recognize is in verses seven through nine, Jesus moves on and he tells us that if we're gonna seek the spiritual well-being of others, here's what we all have to do. We have to deal radically with our own sin. Isn't that how Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter number seven in the famous passage that all of your non-Christian friends quote to you? Judge not, right? What, church, that you be not Judge, and the whole point of that passage is not, don't judge at all. The whole point of that passage is judge yourself before you start trying to judge and deal with other people's sins. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. And he is speaking, let's not miss this, very strongly. Did you catch that in verses eight and nine? He says, sin is so bad and it should be dealt with so seriously He's like, if your sin, if, if it, what it takes for you to deal with your own sin is to cut off your arm, that probably would be a whole lot better than going to hell. Which tells me that if we don't deal with our sin, that we cannot be a kingdom uh, citizen and somebody who doesn't deal with sin. Those two things are not compatible. We must deal with our sin if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven at all. And of course, Christ helps us to do that. But what I think I want you to see, church family, out of verses eight through nine, is that when it comes to dealing with our sin, there is not a price that is too high to pay. See, a lot of us will deal with our sin unless it requires a certain amount of effort. Well, pastor, I'll deal with that sin unless I have to make an embarrassing confession to somebody who I really want to make sure I have a good image with. 
I'll deal with that sin unless it means that I have to get some counseling. I'll deal with that sin unless it means I have to change how I spend my money, because after all, it's my money anyway. I'll deal with that sin unless it means that you're telling me I need to give that up. And friends, what Jesus is trying to communicate to us in verses eight through nine is that there is no price that is too high to pay for the cost of dealing with our sin. He's not necessarily saying you should go cut off your hand or your foot, but he's saying about everything else you should be willing to do to deal with your sin. And so many Christians, they care about their sin until it takes a lot of work to deal with it. Because let me tell you, sin gets messy quick. It complicates things. Dealing with sin in marriages, it's, it's years of stuff you've got to untangle. And there's probably some out there who's like, you know what, I would just rather ignore this issue than deal with it because honestly, it's just too big of a project. And friend, I'm not saying you'll go to hell if you don't deal with that. I'm just saying that maybe verse eight and nine should motivate you that it might be worth the extra work. It might be worth the extra work. Because I would much rather face my savior having dealt with my sin the best I humanly possibly could than to say, you know what, Jesus, it was just too hard. It was just too hard. And friends, recognize this, that if you don't deal with your sin, there are ways in which your tolerance of sin affect other Christians. I think Jesus is making that connection in our passage. He's showing us that if we don't deal with our sin, it it may very well lead our brother and sister to sin. That's why there are a lot of ways in which the church corporately sometimes has to deal with sin because it's very important that there is a, a common commitment among these four walls to living in a way that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we don't deal with our sin, here's what we're communicating to the person in the next row to us. We're saying, you know what? It actually doesn't matter. I know what the Bible says, but it doesn't matter. If you want to look at my life, that's what I'm communicating. It doesn't matter if we deal with it or not. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to sin, (coughs) I just get sick and tired of it. Don't you? I'm tired of sin. You know what? You could be fighting sin your whole life. You will be fighting sin your whole life. Every one of us has stuff we've got to deal with. I don't even know what's in your heart. And I know you've got stuff you've got to deal with because I know I have stuff that I need to deal with. And I don't know about you, sometimes I think, when is this whole sin stuff going to be done? And maybe you didn't notice it, but verse number seven can be really encouraging to some of you sin-fighting Christians because Jesus pronounces words of judgment. That's what the word woe means. It's not what you say when your horse, you know, rears back on you. That's not what woe means. Woe means may judgment come upon you. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, may judgment come upon the world because of sin or offenses. And he says, it must needs that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. I don't know about you, but as I was reading this passage this week, though I need to deal with my sin, 
And though I need to deal with it in this life so that I can be prepared for the next life, Jesus reminds us in verse number seven that sin has a deadline. There will be a judgment day on sin. Jesus has already pronounced it. And the sinful world that we live in is on a clock. And Jesus will deal with it finally and fully. And so as you feel tired fighting sin, friends, recognize the day will come. You don't have to fight it any longer because our King and our Savior will come and he will wage war and he will end all sin forevermore. Amen. Just keep fighting the fight and keep trusting that God will take care of sin on his timeline. But listen, as you and I journey through life as God's children, what we have to recognize is as we're dealing with our own sin, even as we're dealing with our own sin, if we have eyes to see, there are gonna be other children of God who get stuck in the briar patches of sin. There are gonna be other people who give up fighting their sin. They're just letting it carry them away. Jesus calls them in verses 10 through 14, straying sheep. What is the response of a true disciple to someone like that? Jesus says that we respond like he responds. His character, verse number 11, is to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse number 10, Jesus values, God values all of his children because, and this is a very confusing thing that I won't get into all the details, their angels do always behold the face of my father. And, and what he's saying there is that in some way, in some sense, there is a personal angelic care of all of God's children from the father himself. And so he says, what do you think? If God values every single soul that much, what would he do if he had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Now, I don't know if you're in ranching, but this is not the best business decision if you were dealing with their technology back in that day. He abandoned 99 perfectly good sheep to go find one knucklehead sheep. Not a good business decision, right? Because, you know, sheep without a shepherd, they might go find their own pasture, but he leaves the 90 and nine and Jesus says he chases after the one and he rejoices more over the one that came back than the 99 who stayed. Friends, what do you think this has to say to us as God's children? Shows us that if we're gonna be great in the kingdom of heaven, if we're gonna be the type of people God has called us to be as citizens of heaven, life is not just about you and your personal relationship with God. It's not every one of you, if you're a child of God, you are called to minister to other people. You have a responsibility for other people. And a true child of God reflects the care and the concern of the father who leaves the 90 and nine to go after the one. Now, why do you think Jesus would say verses 10 through 14 about finding the lost sheep right after he talks about cutting off your arms and dealing with radical sin in your life? Can I propose a solution? 
I wonder if it's because he's recognizing the reality that some people would just rather let sin destroy them. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't maybe care to deal with it. And the only way that someone else may deal with their sin is if somebody goes after them and cares enough about them to bring them back into the fold. And friends, here's what I found in Christianity. All all of us care about God's other children. We have a heart level concern. But a lot of times, because we count ourselves out, well, that's that person's job, or, oh, it'll be awkward if I say something because they've been gone, or they're going to think, who are you to talk to me about my problems? That's where a lot of us stop. But friend, can I remind you that, that Jesus didn't say, if there's a sheep straying, just, just pray for it. He said, go get it. Go get it. Friends, I, I know that all of us know some of God's children that are, sometimes you can see it way sooner than I can, and they're drifting. And someone has to care enough to say, what's going on? I've noticed this or that. Can I pray with you about something? Is there a reason you've been gone? You might say, well, I don't know about that. That's a, that's a pretty courageous thing to do. But Jesus says that it's worth it because look at verse number 13, he says, and if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine, which went not astray. And he says, let me remind you that it's not the will of your father in heaven that even a single one of these perish. God doesn't desire one single sheep to be left out to dry. And I think it's far more normal for Christians to be concerned about themselves. And I'm not meaning this in a mean way, but we go to church and we make sure that we get what we need from the preaching so that we can draw closer to Jesus. And maybe that circle of concern extends to our immediate family, but that's the only circle we've got. And yet Jesus is saying, you need to expand your circle of compassion to encompass the entire fold, the flock of which God has placed you. And for most of you, that is Fellowship Baptist Church. Jesus is reminding us that the kingdom of God is not about self-interest. That those who make up the kingdom have a world that is shaped by God and his greatness, and we trust in his greatness like a child, but also the kingdom of God is giving us a huge heart to help other people spiritually because sometimes without our help, they may fall off the wagon. What is true greatness? True greatness is trusting God like a child. And it's seeking the spiritual well-being of others. Let me ask you this morning, in what area of your life would you benefit by just deciding this morning to trust God like a child? Where have you complicated things? Maybe you need to remind yourself that 
You don't need to keep looking to yourself, but you need to keep looking to God because he is the one that is truly great. And for some of you, what would it look like for you to do better at seeking the spiritual well-being of others? Honestly, for, for some, it just starts with a warm interaction to one of God's kids. Do, listen, some of y'all are putting the responsibility on someone else to do that. Don't do that. It's your job. Take personal responsibility. Receive one another. Receive one another. But go beyond that. Friendliness is good. But seeking the spiritual well-being of others and caring for them if they go astray, boy, that's even better. Because that's some big stuff when we care about someone who's straying from the Lord. Let's spend some time reflecting on God's word this morning. Maybe even now you would pray and ask God for help to trust him like a child and to submit to uh, his words and what they have to say. And as my wife comes, I just want you to reflect on, on the words this morning. Think about what you can do. It doesn't have to be big steps, baby steps. What you can do to live a life that is about seeking the spiritual well-being of others. Some of us, we've got so many problems, it's easy to be focused on what's going on in our own life. But think about what you could do after church. Who could you talk to that maybe you haven't initiated a conversation with? Who's been gone that you could check in on and challenge them to be back? Who's grown discouraged that you could encourage? And don't just think about it. Don't even just pray about it, but write it down and do something about it. Because faith without works, the Bible says, is dead.